0: Section 48 of Cambridge Medieval History Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Cambridge Medieval History Volume 1. Section 48. Chapter 14 Italy and the West. Four hundred and ten to four hundred and seventy six by Ernest Barker. Part two. There was, however, a second and perhaps more crucial cause of hostilities between the Goths and the Romans. Placidia still remained with the Goths, and the question of the succession which her marriage involved had still to be settled. Again and again in the course of history, the problem of a dubious succession has been the very hinge of events and the question of the succession to Honorius, as it had influenced the policy and the fate of Stilicho, still continued to determine the policy of Atoll and the history of the Western Empire. In this question, Constantius, the master of the troops, was now resolved to interfere. Sprung from Nisus, the modern niche, he was a man of pure Roman blood, and stood at the head of the Roman or anti-barbarian party. In him, says Orosius, the state felt the utility of having its forces at last commanded by a Roman general, and realised the danger it had before incurred from its barbarian generals. As he rode, bending over his horse's mane, and darting quick looks to right and left, men said of him, Olympiodorus writes, that he was meant for empire and he had resolved to secure the succession to the throne by the hand of placidia the more perhaps as such a marriage would mean the victory of his party and the defeat of the barbarian atolf in the autumn of 413 hostilities began atolf passed from aquitanica secunda into narbonensis he seized toulouse and at the time of the gathering of the grapes, he occupied Narbonne, Marseille, which as a great port would have been an excellent source of supplies, he failed to take, owing to the stout resistance of Boniface, the future count of Africa. But at Narbonne, in the beginning of 414, he took the decisive step of wedding Placidia. By a curious irony, the bridegroom offered to the bride as his wedding gift, part of the treasures which Alaric had taken from Rome, and the ex-emperor Attalus, joined in singing the Epithalamia. Yet Romans and Goths rejoiced together, and the marriage, like that of Alexander the Great to Roxana, is the symbol of the fusion of two peoples and two civilizations. Thus was fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel. Audacious writes, that a daughter of the King of the South should marry the King of the North. Meanwhile in Italy, Constantius had been created consul for the year 414 and was using the confiscated goods of the rebel Heraclean to celebrate his entry upon office with the usual public entertainments. In the very month of the marriage festivities at Narbonne, in the spring he advanced into Gaul, Here he found that Atoll, anxious for some colour of legitimacy and seeking to maintain some connection with the Roman name, had caused Attalus once more to play the part of emperor, excusing thereby his occupation of Narbonensis, as the Franks and their allies had sought to excuse their position on the west of the Rhine by the elevation of Jovinus in 412. An imperial court arose in Bordeaux, in the spring of 414, and Paulinus of Pella was made procurator of the imaginary imperial domain of the actor-emperor Atalus, who once more, in the phrase of Orosius, played at empire for the pleasure of the Goths. But on the approach of Constantius, Atov set the city on fire, and leaving it smoking behind him, advanced to defend Narbonensis. Constantius, however, used his fleet to prevent the Goths from receiving supplies by sea, and the pressure of famine drove Atoll from Narbonne. He retreated by way of Bazas, which he failed to take as the procurator Paulinus induced the Alans to desert from his army, and having no longer a base in Bordeaux, he was forced to cross the Pyrenees into Spain, where, along with the emperor Attalus, he occupied Barcelona, probably in the winter of 414 to 415. In devastated Spain, famine still dogged the steps of the Goths. The Vandals nicknamed them Trulli, because they paid a piece of gold for each Trula of corn they bought. This of itself would naturally drive Atoll to negotiate with Honorius, but the birth of a son and heir Significantly named Theodosius made both Atulf and Placidia tenfold more anxious for peace and for the recognition of their child's right of succession to the throne of his childless uncle. The emperor Attalus was thrown aside as useless. Atulf was ready to recognise Honorius if Honorius would recognise Theodosius, but his hope shipwrecked on the resistance of Constantius who had now been rewarded by the title of Patricius for his success in expelling the Goths from Gaul. Soon afterwards, the child Theodosius died and was buried in a silver coffin with great lamentations at Barcelona. In the same city in the autumn of 415, Atoll himself was assassinated in his stables by one of his followers. With him died his dream of restoring by Gothic strength the Roman name. Yet with his last breath, he commanded his brother to restore Placidia and make peace with Rome. The Goths, however, were not minded for peace. On the death of Atolf, after the week's reign of Sigarish, memorable only for the humiliation he inflicted on Placidia by forcing her to walk 12 miles on foot before his horse, there succeeded a new king, Wallia, Elected by his people, Orosius says to make war with Rome, but ordained by God to make peace. Harassed by want of supplies, Wallia resolved to imitate the policy of Alaric and to strike at Africa, the great granary of the West. The fate of Alaric attended his expedition. His fleet was shattered by a storm during its passage, twelve miles from the Straits of Gibraltar, at the beginning of 416. Wallia now found that it was peace with Rome, which alone would give food to his starving army, and Rome was equally ready for peace if it only meant the restoration of Placidia. In the course of 416, the treaty was made. The Romans purchased Placidia by 600,000 measures of corn. Wallia became the ally of the empire and promised to recover Spain from the Vandals, Alans and Suaves. In January 417, Constantius was once more created consul. In the same month he became the husband of the unwilling Placidia. She bore him two children, Honoria and Valentinian, and thus the problem of the succession was finally settled by the victory of the Roman Constantius, and the name of Rome was renewed by Roman strength. It was no undeserved triumph which Constantius celebrated in 417. The turmoil which had raged since Alaric's entry into Greece in 396 seemed to have ceased. The loss of the whole of the Gauls, which had seemed inevitable since the usurpation and the barbarian influx of 406, was at any rate in large measure averted. Constantius had recovered much of the seven provinces. Wallia was recovering Spain. Constantius too was finally destined to settle the problem of the Goths and to give them at last the quieter patria in search of which they had wandered for so many years. For a time Wallia fought valiantly in Spain, 416 to 418. He destroyed the Silingian vandals and so thoroughly defeated the Alans that the broken remnants of the tribe merged themselves into the Asdingian Vandals. In the beginning of 416, the Romans had only held the east coast and some of the cities of Spain. By 418, the Asdingian Vandals and the Suaves had been pushed back into the northwest of the peninsula, and Lusitania and Biotica had been recovered. In 419, Wallia had his reward. Constantius summoned the Goths into Gaul and gave them for a habitation, the second Aquitaine. Along with it went Toulouse, which became their capital, and other towns in the Narbonese province, and thus the Visigoths acquired a territory of their own, with an Atlantic seaboard, but as yet without any outlet to the Mediterranean we can only conjecture the reasons which dictated this policy. It may be, as Professor Berry suggests, that Honorius did not wish to surrender Spain because it was the home of the Theodosian house and the seat of the gold mines. It may be that the imperial government wished to invigorate with the leaven of Gothic energy and declining population of southwestern Gaul. In any case, the policy is of great importance. For the first time the imperial government had, of its own motion, given a settlement within the empire to a Teutonic people living under its own king. But the policy becomes doubly important when it is considered in connection with the constitution of 418, which gave local government to Gaul and enacted that representatives of all its towns should meet annually at Arles. Honorius was endeavouring to throw upon Gaul the burden of its own government. And in the new municipal federation, which he had thus instituted, he sought to find a place for the Goths. On the one hand, the council at Arles would contain representatives from the towns in Gothic territory and would thus connect the Goths with the Roman name. On the other, the Goths, as foederati of the council, defending its territory and supplying its troops, would give weight to its deliberations. The policy of decentralisation, thus enunciated in 418, and the combination of that policy with the settlement of the Visigoths in 419, indicate that the empire was ceasing to be centralised and Roman, and was becoming instead Teutonic and local. The years that elapsed between the settlement of the Goths and the death of Honorius in 423, are occupied by the affairs of Italy and the court history of Ravenna. In 421, Constantius, who had been virtual ruler of the West since 411, was elevated by Honorius, somewhat reluctantly, to the dignity of Augustus and the position of colleague. Placidia, to whose instance the elevation of her husband was probably due, had her own ambition satisfied by the title of Augusta, and began actively to exercise the influence on events, which she had already exercised more passively during the struggle between Atoll and Constantius. The elevation of Constantius and of Placidia to the imperial dignity led to friction with the Eastern Empire, which refused to ratify the action of Honorius, and in 421 a war seemed imminent between East and West. But Constantius, whose rough soldier tastes made him chafe at the restrictions of imperial etiquette, fell ill and died in the autumn of 421, and with his death the menace of war disappeared. The influence of Placidia, remained unshaken after her husband's death. The weak Honorius shared his affection between his beloved poultry and his sister, and scandal-mongers even whispered tales about his excessive affection for Placidia. But by 422, the affection had yielded to hatred, and a struggle raged at Revenar between the party of Honorius and a party gathered round Placidia which found its support in the retinue of barbarians she had inherited from her marriages with Adolf and Constantius. The struggle would appear to be the old struggle of the Roman and the barbarian parties, and it is perhaps permissible to conjecture that the question at issue was the succession to the office of Magister Militum, which Constantius had held. If this conjecture be admitted... Castinus may be regarded as the candidate of Honorius and Boniface as the candidate of Placidia and the quarrel of Castinus and Boniface on the eve of a projected expedition against the Vandals of Spain which is related by the annalist may thus be connected with the struggle between Honorius and Placidia the issue of the struggle was the victory of Honorius and Castinus 422 Castinus became the Magister Militum, and took command of the Spanish expedition, in which he allowed himself to be signally defeated by the Astingian vandals now settled in Baetica. Boniface fled from the court to Africa, and established himself at the head of a body of foederati as a semi-independent governor of the African diocese where he had before been serving as the tribune of barbarian auxilia. The flight of Boniface was followed by the banishment of Placidia and her children to Constantinople, 423. But in her exile she was supported by Boniface, who sent her money from Africa. This was the position of affairs when Honorius died, 423. One of the weakest of emperors, He had had a most troubled reign, yet the last years of his rule had been marked by peace and success, thanks to the valour and policy of Constantius, who had defeated the various usurpers and recovered much of the transalpine lands. The one virtue of Honorius was a taste for government on paper, such as his nephew Theodosius II also showed he issued a number of well-meant constitutions, alleviating the burden of taxation on Italy after the Gothic ravages and seeking to attract new cultivators to wastelands by the offer of advantageous terms. The death of Honorius marks the beginning of a new phase in the history of the Western Empire. For the next 30 years, a new personality dominates the course of events within the Empire. Aetius, fills the scene with his actions, while without the barbaric background, is peopled by the squat figures of the Huns. Aetius was a Roman from Silistria, born about the year 390, the son of a certain Gaudentius, a magister equitum, by a rich Italian wife. In his youth he had served in the office of the Praetorian prefect, and twice he had been a hostage once with Alaric and his Goths, and once with the Huns. During the years in which he lived with the Huns, some time between 411 and 423, he formed a connection with them, which was to exercise a great influence on the whole of his career and on the history of the empire itself. The Huns themselves, until they were united by Attila under a single government after the year 445, were a loose federation of Asiatic tribes, living to the north of the Danube, and serving as a fertile source of recruits for the Roman army. They had already served Stilicho as mercenaries in his struggle with Radagaisus, and some time afterwards Honorius had taken ten thousand of them into his service. After four hundred and twenty-three, they definitely formed the bulk of the armies of the empire which was now unable to draw so freely on the German tribes, occupied as these were in winning or maintaining their own settlements in Gaul, in Spain and in Africa. Valentinian the Third may thus almost be called emperor by the grace of the Huns, and to them Aetius owed both his political position and his military success. On the death of Honorius, the natural heir to the vacant throne, was the young Valentinian, the son of Constantius and Placidia. But Valentinian was only a boy of four, and he was living at Constantinople. When the news of Honorius's death came to the ears of Theodosius II, he concealed the intelligence, until he had sent an army into Dalmatia. And he seems to have contemplated, at any rate for the moment, the possibility of uniting in his own hands the whole of the empire. But meanwhile a step was taken at Ravenna, either in order to anticipate and prevent such a policy on the part of the Eastern Emperor, or independently and without any reference to his action, which altered the whole position of affairs. A party with which Castanus, the new magister Militum, seems to have been connected, determined to assert the independence of the West, and elevated John, the chief of the notaries in the imperial service, to the vacant throne. Atius took office under the usurper as cura palatii, or constable, and was sent to the Huns to recruit an army. While all the available forces were dispatched to Africa to attack Boniface, the foe of Castinus and the friend of Placidia and Valentinian. Theodosius found himself compelled to abandon any hopes he may have cherished of annexing the Western Empire and to content himself with securing it for the Theodosian house while recognising its independence. He accordingly sent Valentinian to the West in 424 with an army to enforce his claims and as John was weakened by the dispatch of his forces to Africa, and Aetius had not yet appeared with his Huns, the triumph of Valentinian was easy. His succession was a vindication of the title of the Theodosian house, and when we consider the anti-clerical policy pursued by John, who had attacked the privileges of the clergy, it may also be regarded as a victory of clericalism, a cause to which the Theodosian house was always devoted. A closer connection between East and West may also be said to be one of the results of the accession of Valentinian, even if it finally prevented the union of the two, which had for a moment seemed possible, and the hostile attitude which had characterised the relations of Byzantium and Rome during the reign of Honorius, both in the days of Stilicho and in those of Constantius, now disappears. Three days after the execution of the defeated usurper, Aetius appeared in Italy with 60,000 Huns. Too late to save his master, he nevertheless renewed the fight, and he was only induced to desist and to send his Huns back to the Danube by the promise of the title of Cums, along with a command in Gaul. Here Theodoric, the king of the Visigoths, had taken advantage of the confusion which had followed on the death of Honorius to deliver an attack upon Arles. Aesius relieved the town and eventually made a treaty in Theodoric, by which in return for the cession of the conquests they had recently made, the Visigoths ceased to stand to the Western Empire in the dependent relation of foederati, and became autonomous. Meanwhile in Italy, Castanus, who appears to have been the chief supporter of John, had been punished by exile, and a certain Felix had taken his place at the head of affairs, with the titles of Magister Militum and Patricius. Inheriting the position of Castinus. Felix seems to have inherited, or at any rate to have renewed, his feud with Boniface, the governor of Africa. Possibly Boniface, the old friend and supporter of Placidia, may have hoped for the position of regent which Felix now held, and he may have been discontented with the reward which he actually received after Placidia's victory. The title of comes, and the confirmation of his position in Africa. Possibly the situation in Africa itself may have forced Boniface, as it had before forced Heraclean, into disloyalty to the empire. Africa was full of Donatus and the Donatists hated the central government, which under the influence of clericalism, used all of its resources to support the orthodox cause. Religious schism became the mother of a movement of nationalism. In contrast with loyal and imperialist Gaul, Africa in the early years of the 5th century was rapidly tending to political independence. At the same time, a certain degeneration of character seems to have affected Count Boniface himself. The noble hero celebrated by Olympiodorus, the pious friend and correspondent of St. Augustine, who had once had serious thoughts of deserting the world for a monastery, would appear, if it not be a calumny of Orthodox Catholics, to have lost all moral fibre after his second marriage to an Arian wife. He showed himself slack at once in his private life and in his government of Africa and the result was a summons from Felix recalling him to Italy in 427. Boniface showed himself contumacious and a civil war began. In the course of the war Boniface defeated one army sent against him by Felix but when a second army came largely composed of mercenaries hired from the Visigoths, and under the command of a German, Sigiswold, he found himself hard-pressed. At this moment, if we follow the accounts of Procopius and Jordanus, Boniface made his fatal appeal to the Vandals of Spain, and thereby irretrievably ruined his own reputation and his province. But Procopius and Jordanus belonged to the 6th century, and the one contemporary authority who writes of this crisis with any detail, Prospertero, definitely says that the Vandals were summoned to the rescue by both contending parties. A concertandibus, and thus implies, what is in itself most probable, that the imperial army under Sigisvolt and the rebel force of Boniface both sought external aid. It may well have been the case that the Vandals were already pressing southward from Spain, towards Africa, and that, perhaps impelled by famine, or attracted by the fertility of Africa, the El Dorado of the Western Germans of this century, they were following the line of policy already indicated by Alaric. And unsuccessfully attempted from Spain itself by Wallia, Spain and Northern Africa have again and again in history being drawn together by an inevitable attraction, alike in the days of Hamilcar and Hannibal, in the times of the Caliphate of Cordova, and during the reigns of the Spanish monarchs of the sixteenth century. So the Vandals who in four hundred and nineteen had moved down from their quarters in the northwest of Spain, and again occupied its southernmost province, Baetica, already appear as early as four hundred and twenty five in Mauritania, probably the western province of Mauritania, Tingitana, which lay just across the Straits of Gibraltar, and counted for administrative purposes as part of Spain. Their pressure would naturally increase when the civil war in Africa opened the doors of opportunity, and we may well imagine that the incoming bands whose numbers and real intentions were imperfectly apprehended in the African diocese, would naturally be invited to their aid by both sides alike. In any case, Gaiseric came with the whole of the Vandal people in the spring of 429, and evacuating Spain, he rapidly occupied the provinces of Mauritania. The Romans at once awoke to their danger. The civil war abruptly ceased and the home government quickly negotiated first a truce and then a definite treaty with the rebel Boniface. Uniting all the forces he could muster, including the Visigothic mercenaries, Boniface, as the recognised governor of Africa, attacked the Vandals after a vain attempt to induce them to depart by means of negotiations. He was defeated. The Vandals advanced from Mauritania into Numidia, and he was besieged in Hippo, 430. A new army came to his aid from Constantinople, under the command of Aspar, but the combined troops of Aspar and Boniface suffered another defeat, 431. After the defeat, Aspar returned to Constantinople, and Boniface was summoned to Italy by Placidia. Hippo fell, and Gaiseric pressed onwards from Numidia, into Africa Proconsularis, it was Asius who was the cause of the recall of Boniface to Italy in four hundred and thirty-two, for the summons of Placidia was dictated by the desire to find a counterpoise to the influence which Asius had by this time acquired. After his struggle with the Goths and the treaty which ended the struggle, four hundred and twenty-six, Asius had still been occupied in Gaul by hostilities with the Franks. While Africa was being lost, Gaul was being recovered. Tours was relieved, and Franks were repelled from Arras, and in 428, driven back across the Rhine. Aetius even carried his arms towards the Danube, and won success in a campaign in Raetia, and Noricum, in the year 430, and in the course of which, he inflicted heavy losses on the Jethungi, a tribe which had crossed the Danube from the north. Like Julius Caesar five centuries before, he now acquired, as the result of his transalpine campaigns, a commanding position at Rome. In 429, he became Magister Equitum Pergallius, but Felix, with the title of Patricius, still stood at the head of affairs. In 430, however, Felix was murdered on the steps of one of the churches at Ravenar, in a military tumult which was apparently the work of Aetius. Felix had been plotting against his dangerous rival, and Aetius forewarned of his plots, and forearmed by the support of his own Hunnish followers, saved himself from impending ruin by the ruin of his enemy. He now became magister or Triusque, militia, at once Generalissimo and Prime Minister of the Empire of the West, and in 432, after a new campaign in Noricum and a second defeat of the Franks, he was created consul for the year. It was at this juncture that Placidia, who according to one authority had instigated the plots of Felix in 430, summoned Boniface to the rescue and sought to recover her independence by creating him master of the troops in Atius's place. The dismissed general took to arms, and a great struggle ensued. Once more, as in the days of Caesar and Pompey, two generals fought for control of the Roman Empire, and as the earlier struggle had shown the utter decay of the Republic, so this later struggle attests, as Momsen remarks, the complete dissolution of the political and military system of the empire. The fight was engaged near Rimini, and though one authority speaks of Asius as victor, the bulk of evidence and the probabilities of the case both point to the victory of Boniface. Boniface died soon after the victory, but his son-in-law Sebastian succeeded to his position and the defeated Aetius, after seeking in vain to find security in retirement on his own estates, fled to his old friends, the Huns. Here he was received by King Rua, and found welcome support. Returning in 433, with an army of Huns, he was completely victorious. It was in vain that Placidia attempted to get the support of the Visigoths. She had to dismiss and then to banish Sebastian and to admit Atius not only to his old office of master of the troops but also to the new dignity of Patricius. Once more as in 425 and in 430 Atius had forced Placidia to use his services and henceforward till his death in 454 he is the ruler of the west. Receiving in royal state the embassies of the provinces and enjoying the honour unparalleled hitherto under the empire for an ordinary citizen of a triple consulate. The policy of Atius seemed steadily directed towards Gaul and to the retention of a basis for the empire along the valleys of the Rhine, the Loire and the Seine. Loyal Gaul seemed to him well worth defence. Nationalist Africa he apparently neglected. One of the first acts of the government, after his accession to power, was the conclusion of a treaty with the Vandals and their king, whereby the provinces of Mauritania and much of Numidia were ceded to Gaiseric in return for an annual tribute and hostages. In this treaty, Atius imitated the policy of Constantius towards the Visigoths, and gave the Vandals a similar settlement in Africa as tributary Fowiderati. Peace once made in Africa, he turned his attention to Gaul. Here there were several problems to engage his attention. The Burgundians were attacking Belgica Prima, the district round Metz and Travez. A jacquerie of revolted peasantry and slaves, the Burgaudi who steadily waged a social war during the 4th and 5th centuries, was raging everywhere. And, perhaps most dangerous of all, the Visigoths, taking advantage of these opportunities to pursue their policy of extension from Bordeaux towards the Mediterranean, were seeking to capture Narbonne. Aetius, with the aid of his Hunnish mercenaries, proved equal to the danger. He defeated the Burgundians who was shortly afterwards almost annihilated by an attack of the Huns, the remnant of the nation gaining a new settlement in Savoy. His lieutenant, Litorius, raised the siege of Narbonne, and he himself, according to his Panegyris Meribordes, defeated a Gothic army during the absence of Theodoric Admontum Colabrarium 436 while the Jacquerie came to an end with the capture of its leader in 437. Encouraged by their successes, the Romans seemed to have carried their arms into the territory of the Visigoths, and in 439, Latorius led his Hunnish troops to an attack upon Toulouse itself. Eager to gain success on his own hand, and rashly trusting the advice of his pagan soothsayers, he rushed into battle, and suffered a considerable defeat. Aetius now consented to peace with the Goths, on the same terms as before, in 426. And he sought to ensure the continuance of the peace by planting a body of alans near Orléans, to guard the valley of the Loire, then leaving Gaul at peace, a peace which continued undisturbed, till the coming of Attila in 451, He returned once more to Italy. End of section 48